0: All right, so we are just sort of picking up where we left off last week. Um, somebody joked with me last week afterwards, you know, we said that we're going all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We're, we're trying to talk about all the big themes of Scripture, and we're trying to do it in two years, basically about 56 weeks. I know that that's not two years, but that's how many weeks of Wednesdays we have. So we're trying to do it there in, in that short amount of time, and that is a short amount of time if you think about it, and somebody joked with me last week that we only made it through three verses of Scripture, so there's no way that we're going to make it in 56 weeks. But I just want to assure you that we're going to gain a head of steam as we go, and we're going to start biting off bigger chunks as we go. But here at the beginning, we, we really do have to spend some time in the beginning of our Bibles to gain an understanding of the first three chapters of the Bible, the first three chapters of Genesis, if we come away with a wrong understanding of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I assure you the rest of your Bible is not going to make sense. You're not going to be able to understand the Bible unless we get a good foundation built in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So last week, we talked about just Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 1, really, and then we got down to verse 3. But we talked about the theme of creation and uh, I think I heard somebody saying it was probably Linda was recapping it. We talked about how that God created on purpose, that he had a purpose in his creation. And we talked about the word where where it says in the beginning and this idea that creation has a beginning, that God thought it out, that he did it intentionally. And so that there's something going on there. And then we got through that and we talked about uh, him creating out of nothing and all those things. And, and we sort of set the stage, I hope, uh, for the idea that, that we're coming on the scene soon. Humanity's showing up on the scene soon. And that's what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about the creation of man and why that's important and how that fits in thematically to this whole thing. So we have this idea that there's a, a clear beginning to history. And with that idea, I think we could also say that there's a clear purpose to history. I think we can draw the, the, connect the dots there pretty easily, that if God created, and he created intentionally, then we can say that he also created with a purpose, And so that we've been created with a purpose. We have a starting point in history, and we're moving towards something. We are not an accident. And we need to understand that, the creation's not an accident. He created everything, including us, with a purpose. And that leads us to the next question, I think, which is really an important question, which is, what is our purpose? And I think that that question is, has been a common and, and um, uh, what's the right word here? Unimportant. It is an important question. But it's been a popular question. That's what I was looking for. A popular question in recent decades in Christianity, mostly because of one single book, The Purpose-Driven Life. Life. And that book and, and everything that came out of it, at least, if nothing else, whether you love it or hate it or you're somewhere in between, you're indifferent, if nothing else, it did help us to have a discussion about our purpose. We need to know what our purpose is. And, and, and we can look in the Bible, and I think that if I asked all of you tonight, without priming you, if I just sat down at the table with you and was making conversation while we were eating, and I asked you tonight, what's your purpose in life? I don't know how many of us there are in this room, 20, 20 people. I guess I would probably get somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 different answers. You know, that that we would define our purpose differently. Each one of us has a different idea of what our purpose is. And the same would go for if I went anywhere and just approached people on the street and asked them, What is your purpose? They would give me all sorts of different answers. But the Bible does make clear for us, I think, in broad terms, what the purpose of God's creation is, and specifically, what the purpose of humanity is. And that purpose is that we've all been created for the glory of God. Now think about that. It's important because we're doing this study and we're calling it. And I'm borrowing the name, by the way. This is not my idea. Borrowing the name from another uh, theologian who did a similar study. But from dust to glory. You were created on purpose for what end? For the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. God says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God creates for his own glory. The Westminster Catechism, if you're familiar with that at all. I know in Baptist circles, we don't spend much time in catechisms. but, uh, But the first question is, what is the chief and highest end of man? And what's another way of saying that? What is the purpose of humanity? And the answer to the question is, man's chief and highest end, or man's purpose, is to glorify God. That's foundational to our faith. All this to say that God did create us for a purpose. And it's important for us to understand that we have a purpose, that we're created to bring him glory. You're part of something. Think of that. You're part of something that God is doing. I mean, every person who's ever walked the earth is part of something that God is doing, that occupied the Godhead before the foundation of the world. I mean, when you start thinking about it in those terms, life starts looking a little different. And I I think that we really struggle with this idea of being part of God's purpose. And I'll try to illustrate this to you, and you can ask me questions at the end if this doesn't make sense. But I think that we sometimes understand creation and and God's plan for His creation sort of like this. Like here we have uh, creation and then we have history begins and then we work forward steaming towards the cross. So we have this grand event, the central event in the Scriptures, the cross of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then eventually now we're moving towards After the cross, we're moving towards the event of the the second coming of Christ and eternity. So, that's like in really simple terms how we understand, I think, how we understand what God is doing. He created, in between creation and the cross, there's the fall, there's humanity's struggles, there's Israel, there's God's plan, Jesus comes makes a way for us to be reconciled to God, we're therefore now reconciled to God in Christ, and we're now waiting for Him to come again. Y'all agree with that? I think the problem is that we kind of live in a parallel timeline. And I think a lot of us view our life this way, even if we don't think explicitly that we do, I think that, that we just do, like in a practical sense. Like, I was born, and I'm just living my life. And somewhere along the way, maybe I meet Jesus, and appropriate the cross in my life, I get saved, right? That should be the central event of your life. And then we go on living, and we're also waiting for what? Yeah, eternity. But we're on like these two separate parallel lines and I I, what I want to say to you is that we can't think of our life as something separate from what God is doing as a whole in his creation and more appropriately we belong here somewhere here we're just here inside of God's plan Does that make sense to you like we're not separate from God's plan. I think it's like a reverse deism or something that we live by. You know what deism is? Where God created the earth and filled the earth and then withdrew from the earth and he's not really involved in things. We kind of have this reverse deism where in our own selves we, we only relate to God this one time and then we withdraw from God, live our life and eventually die and, and then we're reconciled to God. But more appropriately we need to understand that we're a part Of what God's doing. We're a part of it. This grand thing that happened at creation where God set history in motion. We're part of the story. God has a purpose for you as part of that story. He has a plan for you as part of that story. We don't live separate down here. We're part of this. We're part of God's plan. That's a big deal if you begin to grasp that. It makes the world look different. That we're created for something. We're involved in something. So now let's look at our scripture passage if we've, if we've got a hold on that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And so here we're, we're skipping through the creation narrative and we're getting straight to the time when God introduces man where he creates man. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And here, again, I'm trying to labor this for us over these first couple of weeks. is so important that the first mention of man, God is creating man with purpose. He's doing it on purpose. This is such a big deal. God specifically created the first person. He did that. He had a plan. And without that truth of us being created on purpose, our life becomes completely, I think, unbearable. Without this idea that God did it on purpose, and we are now living in that purpose. Without the idea of purpose, life just becomes unbearable. I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, I, I don't know how many times we actually really think about it, but just think about it. If, if, you're, if there's no purpose, then why I live? I mean, several years ago, uh, Nick and Chuck and I were in Ethiopia, we got laid over on a flight, stuck there for a day, and so we decided instead of sleeping the day away, we had a day in Addis Ababa in the capital city, and we said, well, let's get a taxi and let's go see something. Let's go do something. And, and just as chance would have it, we the driver that we got, we said, go show us something neat, show us something important. And so he took us to the National Museum of Ethiopia. And uh, and it, compared to our museums, it was pretty small. There wasn't a whole lot to it. It looked like a kind of a minor cultural exhibit. But in the bottom level, below ground, there's one of the most important exhibits on the planet. And in Ethiopia, this is where they have all, or not all, but many of the most important fossils of what scientists believe are early humans. If you go there, in particular, uh, they have the fossil of Lucy. How many of you know about Lucy. Yeah So Lucy is Austropithecus, is that right? Something like that? Three billion, or three, three million years ago. supposedly Lucy, as this early humanoid creature, some link between apes and men, Lucy lived, and, and they found 40 percent of a skeleton. They pieced it together, and they call it Lucy. If you ever have the opportunity to see a cast of Lucy, you should see it because it's really interesting. It's interesting to me because when I look at it, I immediately think, wow, what an interesting monkey. You know, It just looks like, it doesn't look human to me at all. And it's interesting as well that if if you read up on Lucy, that most of the scientists would agree that, that most of the traits that Lucy has, she has far more in common with chimpanzees and gorillas than she does with human beings. Yet... They, they conclude that this is, in fact, evidence that we've just simply evolved from apes into what we are. And if you follow that backwards, and you've all taken science classes and been taught this theory, that if you just follow it backwards, that, that Lucy was a higher form of something that came before her, which was a higher form of something that came before it. And working our way backwards, we eventually just arrive at this single cell, life form that has evolved into everything that we see now. And just think about that. Let's just suppose for a minute that that's true. What's that mean for you? I mean, what does it really mean if that's true? And, and, and by the way, let, let me say this. that there, There's no room scripturally for theistic evolution. It's just not there. So what does it say? If we're just evolved from something. One philosopher said it this way. He said, we are grown-up germs. We've emerged out of the slime. Another uh, philosopher and theologian said, we're cosmic accidents. If this is true, we're cosmic accidents with no inherent purpose to our existence. And one well-known philosopher Said in the middle of the 20th, 20th century that if this is true, if there's no real purpose to our lives, if we've simply evolved into what we are today, that the only real question left for philosophers to answer is the question of suicide. That's all that's left. Now think about this. Think about this, and just experientially follow me for a minute. How many of you have felt the rise in suicide in our culture recently you 're aware of it because it 's true the The suicide rate is skyrocketing in our culture right now in, in our in the West and particularly in america it's it 's on the rise in every state except for one it 's been on the rise it 's now this is Unbelievable! A study by the Center for Disease Control released last year in 2018 said that suicide is now the 10th leading cause of death in our nation. And among people 15 to 34, it's the second leading cause of death. Let's just think of this. I'm sorry? I don't know. I'm not sure. But it, it, whatever is first and whatever is third to me, seems almost irrelevant. It's shocking that suicide would would come that far to the top. And there's all these speculations, if you read the report, about what may be causing it. And some have said that what's causing it is this is a response to the recession that hit us 10 years ago and and the downturn in the economy and people lost jobs and families were uh, changed forever and people just can't cope with the change in their life. Some have said that it's because of the opioid epidemic. We all see the results of that everywhere, I think. You've all probably known somebody or been touched by that epidemic in your own life. Some have said that, that there's a connection between the rise of social media in our culture and the use of social media and suicide and the inability to, to disconnect and escape from everything in life now leads people to high stress levels and the suicide rate's rising. And no, nobody can really pinpoint it. But I think, I think, and I'm no expert here, I think there's a direct relationship In Western culture, between the the demise of a biblical worldview in our culture, and understanding that there is purpose to your life that's larger than you are, once we lose that culturally, there's no other place to go but to say life is meaningless. And it's not too far to get from there to the next step. This is a big problem, this idea of purpose. The moment we decide we're an accident, life loses its meaning. But our perspective is different, isn't it? As we believe in Genesis 1 when God said, let us make man that God was creating us on purpose for a purpose as part of his plan. So we are part of something. And there's something even bigger In the creation account that we read as well, not only could we say that we're created on purpose, but we can say that we're special above all other things in creation. Which, again, culturally, and particularly our children now, are being taught the exact opposite of that. We're not special culturally. In our culture, in our secular culture, we're not special, are we? If anything, we're a burden to our creation, right? We're wrecking this whole thing. And if it wasn't for human beings, it would just be an idyllic, wonderful place, but we're destroying everything. But the Bible says that we're special, that we're above everything. I mean, think about it God created the heavens, He created the earth, He put the stars in the sky, He put the sun in the sky, He put the moon. In the sky, he filled the universe. He created the earth and all the living creatures in it. He created the the fish, the birds, the plants, the grass, all of it. And when he's done with all of that, he says it's good, but there's only one thing left to create, which is us. And we're the only thing in creation that God says, let us create this in our image. It's image-bearer. Let us make him in our image, in our likeness. We're special. Now, you and I are above the creation. In fact, if we just kept reading the creation account, I think you're probably familiar enough with it to know that God gave us dominion over the rest of creation. He, not only implicitly, because we're made in his image, but explicitly said, you have dominion. You rule over the rest of the creation, over every living you have dominion over it and that also carried a responsibility to care for it and do all those things but we're created in the image and the likeness of God image and likeness we're special now what this doesn't mean is that we're the same as God in every way. You understand that, obviously. It's not what it means. We're not little gods. And there is a, a rampant theology, sweeping Western culture. And I could show you clip after clip after clip, and I could almost guarantee if you went home tonight and turned on any one of the three or four Christian broadcasting networks on your television... You couldn't make it an hour without somebody on there telling you that you are a little God. We're not little gods. We're creatures and we, we bear all that. But what this does mean, being in the image and likeness of God, means that in, in some way we are like him. That we're a reflection of him. R.C. Sproul said, this does not mean we're exactly as God is, but there is some point of analogy. Some way in which we as human creatures are like God. Now, this would be really hard for us to discuss. And maybe at a different time, in a Sunday school class or something, we can spend 12 weeks discussing the, what it means to be made in the image and the likeness of God and how we share the attributes of God in some way. But for tonight, I just want to share sort of the main thing. Because this is going to lead us to understand why the fall... It's such a big deal, which is where we're going next, if you haven't guessed. So we have creation, God creating, and we have the creation of man. In Genesis 3, we have the fall. And this is the foundation for what comes next. Here's a couple things. If you're taking notes, here's what you want to write down. Being created in the image and likeness of God, first of all, means that we're intelligent. Now, some of you might argue... (laughs) That that's actually true about yourself or somebody sitting near you. At times, I think Denise would argue that I'm probably not the most intelligent person in the world. Amen? <laughs> but, but not intelligent in the way that we use the word necessarily. When we say that somebody's intelligent, what are we saying? That they're smart. That they, they have an above average intellect. That they're intelligent. They're an intelligent person. But what we mean when we say that, they, that we're intelligent or that God is intelligent... Is we just mean that that God is is or God has and we have an intellect, so we think. We're aware of things. We're conscious of things. We're, we're we are intelligent beings. We're able to reason. That's a big deal, right? We're able to 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 think rationally about things and make decisions. And that leads us sort of to the other layer of that thing is that not only are we intelligent, not only do we have an intellect, but we are moral beings. And again, be careful how we use the word because if I said that you're a moral person, what would I be saying in our current vernacular? What would would I be trying to communicate if I said John's a good moral guy? Yeah, good conduct. And that's not necessarily what we mean when we, when we talk about it this way in, in, in theology. When we say that God is a moral being and that we're moral beings, we're saying that, that we have a will and we're able to reason and then act upon our will. That we're able to make decisions. That we're able to measure things. And we have the ability to reason and to decide and then to act. So we're moral beings. We're moral agents like God. This is so important. How many of you have a dog? And the best way to understand something sometimes is understand what it's not. And you have a dog. And your dog, if, if we're just using the definition, if we're saying that something is intelligent because it's, it thinks and it's aware and it's conscious, then you could say that your dog's intelligent. I would argue that that's a big stretch. I, I I mean I love my dog, but but he's and sometimes I say my dog's smart, but he's not. He's not smart. He's not really that smart at all. Neither is your dog. You know they're not they're not really that that intelligent. But he he does have the ability to think, and he has uh, the ability. He, he's aware of his surroundings, and he's certainly conscious most of the time. <coughs> But, he's, but that other layer is not present in him. He's not a moral agent. In the sense that my dog never makes decisions based upon reasoning and rational thought and then acting because he thinks what he's doing is right or wrong. Dogs do things. Animals do things. Because they've been taught through repetition or out of instinct. you agree with that? My dog never does anything because he thinks it's right in the moral sense. He's not a moral being. There's only one moral creature. And that's a human being. Every other creature lacks that component. And that alone, if that was where it ended, and it doesn't end there, like we could, like I said, spend 12 weeks learning about this, and we could talk about all the ways that we're like God, and the ability to love, that's a way that we're like God, right? We share that with God. The ability to be creative is a way that we're like God. Even having moments of anger, God is angry sometimes. So we see... All, so all those things, we're like God in, in our emotions. But, but if it's just this one thing, that's enough to say that we're creating the image of God. And that's huge because that separates us from all the rest of creation. That separates us from every other thing. So we think about this. We're getting ready to wrap up. We're out of time. We're We're not accidents. When God created us, he created us on purpose and for a purpose, for for the cause of giving him glory. We're not animals without morals. We're the climax of God's creation. We're the pinnacle of it. At the end of that day of creation, every other day God looked and said, it's good at the end of the creation, the high point of creating man and woman. He looks at his creation and says what? This is very good. So we, we crown it. And then when we understand this, we understand this about ourselves, that we were created in the image of God and with the ability to think and with the ability to act on our will and to, to do right and to do wrong. When we think about that and the truth that we were meant to reflect in creation who God is, then by the time we get to Genesis 3, it brings a new weight to that. And we realize the tragedy of what happened then. When we chose, when we chose through our moral ability to rebel against the one who created us, it's a big deal.